You're listening to the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast, episode 64. Today for the intro, I have Frank joining me again. Frank, tell us a little bit about our guest today. Hey, Matt. Sure. Um, today, our guest is Adam Moreno. Uh, he was actually a fan of the podcast before coming to NASA. Um, so it's kind of a, a cool thing to see that cycle of exactly. the podcast bringing people in and now putting that all back out there. Um, it was interesting after we recorded the session that he was like, oh yeah, I listened to all the episodes before. So it was kind of surreal. So yeah. <laughs> it's nice coming full circle. Totally, totally. Uh, so yeah, Adam is a computer scientist by trade who now sort of sits at the crux between supercomputing and earth sciences, um, which is, a, I think, a really cool combination of skill sets um, because you know NASA does uh, so much research uh, on earth sciences and, and gathers a huge amount of global data. Um, and so what Adam does is he works with a program called NEX, the NASA Earth Exchange, that works to bring those data sets and make them public. So any researcher anywhere in the world can make use of all of that data that NASA collects. Um, so especially, you know, in this day and age, um, having access to all of that information about, yeah. you know, the Earth's climate systems and weather and all this different stuff can be really, really important. Excellent. So we don't want to spoil it too much, but a little bit of housekeeping before we jump on in. Um, you know, folks who are listening, you want to participate we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley on any social media platform you can think of. Um, also, we have a phone number that's 650-604-1400. Give us a call, leave us a message. We'll see how we can integrate that into the episodes. Um, also, obviously, if you've already found us, we would love for uh, like review, comments, thoughts, suggestions, all that stuff. You can find us on all of the major podcast platforms or you can grab our RSS feed and plug it into your own favorite podcasting app. But for today's episode, let's hear from Adam Moreno. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you haven't been here that long, but no. like what brought you to NASA? How did you end up in Silicon Valley? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm from, um, like a small rural town in uh, northeastern Oregon. Okay. And um, then I went and got my bachelor's in computer engineering from Oregon State. Okay. Went into the Peace Corps for a couple years. Nice. And then um, went to graduate school for my master's at University of Montana. Okay. And there I was fortunate enough to have an advisor who, um, super smart, super nice guy, and has been working with uh, NASA for years now, decades mm -hmm. now, on some of their uh, Earth-observing satellite missions. And uh, while I was there, he, I guess, got an invitation from NASA Ames to send some of his students to come here yeah. and uh, learn how to use the supercomputer that we have here oh, to be able to do, um, yeah, like, cool Earth science. And so even thinking back, I'm imagining, you know, spending time in Montana, which is like, it's called Big Sky, you know, like for a reason. Yeah. But even imagining like Peace Corps, if, I mean, I, I know from traveling overseas, if you go to some countries that are like, that are developing countries, yeah. not as much light pollution. I'm thinking Montana, not as much light pollution. So you just be like sitting back and looking at the stars, like just blow your mind. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. But you know, actually I think it's interesting because if you ask most people what they think about NASA or what yeah. comes to mind when they think about NASA, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is space and, you know, yes, of course. you know, astronauts, space shuttles. And of course we do all that cool stuff. Yeah. But we also do a lot of cool earth science as yeah, well. Absolutely. And so actually in the Peace Corps, this is where I kind of 
changed gears because I had okay. a degree in computer engineering, you know, um, but then I went in the Peace Corps and I went like... That, that seems kind of rare, going from computer engineering to go to the Peace Corps. Where did you go? What did you do? Well, so I went to um, Paraguay and nice. I was sent out into the jungle in Paraguay into a little community of like 300 people. Mm-hmm. I built my house there. I worked with the schools, farmers, students, all that sort of stuff. But what I think actually kind of changed my path from maybe a traditional engineering path to Mm -hmm. um, doing earth science sort of stuff is just, uh, you know, uh, the majority of people who live out in the countryside in South America are subsistence farmers, right? You know, they live off of what they grow, you know, and if they don't grow anything, their family doesn't eat. Yeah. And so things like droughts and heat waves. There's high stakes. Yeah. yeah. They're a matter of life and death, really. Mm-hmm. And so when I, I came back, I realized, you know, I want to work on something that can, you know, help actually the majority of the world that are so tied to the environment that, yeah, it's a matter of life and death. And so so I came back and I decided I wanted to study, yeah, climate-related issues, ecology-related mm-hmm. ecology, uh, issues. And so, yeah, at University of Montana, actually, I studied uh, forest ecology and ecological modeling and ecological okay. modeling just means taking like an ecological system like a forest turning it into mathematical equations and then turning those equations into a computer model that you can then use to yeah and this is one of the cool things that nasa does it's like you know is the data collection and then yeah. you then using the scientific community to turn data into knowledge but um gathering that data it's not just from you know, satellite based telescopes, there's, you know, a lot of like, you know, data collection on the ground. And people always tend to think of, you know, the larger climate, the big picture, Mother Earth perspective. But a lot of that data is used for agriculture. Yeah. Uh, even right. here in the United States, oh, yeah. it's like it's crucial information for, you know, even disaster response. You know, you got to know how the Earth is reacting. Um, it, it just pay, that data that NASA collects pays dividends for all kinds of groups down the road. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. And that's that's NASA's job, right? To understand this huge, massive, complex system that we're living on and in mm-hmm. and that we depend on, right? I mean, it hasn't been that long that uh, humans have been able to actually study the whole entire globe. Yeah. Right? It wasn't until like the 70s that uh, NASA and USGS sent up the first satellites dedicated to monitoring uh, the environment, actually. Yeah. And also you need big computers to be able to understand what's going on. And that also hasn't been uh, that long. So actually this is all relatively new science, uh, being able to study continents, entire continents Mm -hmm. or the entire global system altogether. But um, yeah, and so so that's what I do here. But that that was my master's, right? So- Yeah, um, from Montana. Yeah, I did my master's Mm -hmm. in Montana. And then uh, for my PhD, I went to Vienna, Austria. Oh, wow. And I did my PhD over there. And um, my last year of my PhD, I came to uh, AGU, which is this big, so the American Geophysical Union here in San Francisco. And I knew I wanted to come to NASA. I'd been here before. <laughs> yeah. I had some exposure. I was like, okay, this is where I want to be. And so I met with uh, who's now uh, Raman Amani, who's now my mentor um, okay. here at Ames. And I at- just asked him, I was like, you know, I want to come be in your group, like, how can I make this happen? And uh, he pointed me towards uh, this fellowship opportunity that uh, NASA, all NASA bases have. 
And so I applied for it and I, <laughs> it I got it out. And, and now I'm here. So, yeah. And you said just um, it's only it hasn't even been quite a year yet. No, not even a year. Oh, wow. And you, we were talking right before we came on doing this, that you'd actually listened to the podcast before even yeah, that's before what, joining up. Yeah, that's right. So, like, so well, I'm going to be working there and better find out what yeah, people are doing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So my last year, of my Ph.D., I, I knew I was coming. And I wasn't really nervous. I was just kind of concentrating on uh, my dissertation and defending. But uh, then I stumbled across this podcast here, and <laughs> that's when I got nervous, actually. Yeah. So, um, yeah, hearing about all the cool stuff all the smart people here are doing. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, coming to the big leagues now. So, oh, fun. So, so yeah. um, you're working right now. Is it called Earth Exchange? Am I saying that right? Or so, the NASA like, Earth Exchange. NASA Earth Exchange. So, okay. I, yeah, I work in a group called uh, the NASA Earth Exchange, or NEX. And uh, it's made up of earth scientists and uh, software engineers. And okay. so actually it's kind of a, a, a hybrid group of the earth sciences division and the supercomputing. Uh, super com advanced supercomputing division. Wow. Yeah, that's right. And so what next is, so next is what we call it. What next's goal is, is um, just uh, facilitating earth scientists to be able to use all of NASA's um, facilities like okay. the supercomputer and getting access to all of the data that exists in the world, actually. So we try to bring in massive data sets, bring it into one place, mm -hmm. and um, then allow uh, the NASA scientists, especially uh, throughout all of the bases at NASA, to come and be able to use the facilities here. And then I think the longer term uh, yeah. goal is to make it even more accessible to the general public at large. But, okay. um, yeah, you know, like NASA has... 10 to 12 bases, however you want to count it. Different centers. Different centers. And, and, and locations. Uh, right, different centers. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people doing all kinds of science there. Um, but, you know, maybe they don't all have direct access to the supercomputer mm -hmm. like we do here at Ames. And so, yeah, Nex's idea was just to, yeah, help yeah. facilitate. Yeah. Help facilitate that. Because yeah. it's not only the researchers here, it's also, you know, NASA, you know, as funded by the taxpayers also mm -hmm. makes goes through great effort to get that information also available to the scientific community yeah because yeah. like it doesn't have to be like we don't have to do it on our own we can reach out to the larger group and you almost kind of crowdfund <laughs> yeah you know crowdsource i guess mm -hmm. you know have everybody working and looking at these data sets and and then you just see things as they pop up well that's right so one of the great things that nasa earth science does is they give out their data to the entire world yeah. for free actually and so this actually spurs uh science and innovation all over the world because you know as scientists here in the united states maybe we don't focus on small countries like paraguay or something mm -hmm. but if i'm an ecologist in paraguay you know paraguay can't afford to have a space program but they can get access to nasa's data to help them understand you know their ecosystem uh mm -hmm. you know over there and uh, yeah, so that's one of the great things NASA does is, is gives away all of the data that we have processed, ready to use uh, for free to the entire world. Yeah, not too long ago, we had one of the exoplanet uh, specialists in here, mm -hmm. and they're talking about you know, um, of course, traditionally, when you think of NASA, you think of rocket launches, but you also think of like looking out into the universe, the solar system and beyond. Yeah. But they're telling the story of how, you know, looking at a, a faraway star and how a planet will transit in front of it. And then, then you can confirm, yes, OK, there is an exoplanet around that star. Mm -hmm. You can see how that planet pulls on the gravity to get another idea of like you can start deducing like 
you know, the density of that planet. But then she was also saying how when, if you capture that light right as it gets through the ring around that star, you have light that passes through that planet, through that planet's atmosphere, and we can look at that atmosphere you put it out on that on the spectrum and can start figuring out, oh, this is mainly made of oxygen, right. nitrogen. This yep. is more carbon or whatever the molecules or the, the properties. So you can really start to understand exoplanets and understand what they're making up. And I just immediately think of an analog of like the best example of a planet to, to compare it to is the one we're sitting on. Yeah. And so as much as we can understand what this Earth is doing... And, and what it's made of, then that helps us be able to compare it to those exoplanets so we can confirm, are they really Earth-like planets out there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we know that because of what we know about Earth. Yeah, no, that's right. So, yeah, that's another reason why NASA does Earth science, because we need to understand what's happening on Earth yeah. to be able to understand the other planets. And actually, one of the great things about being an early career scientist yeah. here at NASA is we have this early career network here. Exactly. And, um, you know, part of that is we take tours of different places around Silicon Valley. Um, we also have these happy hours and stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so during the happy hours, I've been able to talk with other scientists who are not Earth scientists. You know, they're uh -huh. studying planets or whatever. These oh, are right. the newcomers. Yeah. Too, right. Yeah. And they're NASA. doing like the cutting edge stuff, right? And um, and uh, yeah, there's there is a lot of overlap. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of people who are doing spectroscopy on other planets, and the same methods that they use are the are derived, you know, maybe from the methods that uh, were developed first to study the Earth, actually. Yeah. And I think some of your work talking about, like, the supercomputers and software is also one of those natural ways to kind of pull things together because it seems like whereas stuff may have been siloed, like, okay, you have Earth science over here, you have, like, you know, biosciences in one area, astrophysics, astrophysicists, or even aeronautics, but it seems that a commonality between a lot of these is becoming, like, computing because everybody who's doing research needs that it's like the supercomputer can help make better sense of the data yeah no that's right so you know getting data from the satellite like one of the satellites about earth that's super cool and and you can learn a lot just by looking at that data but in earth science often what we do is we take data from all sorts of different sources maybe several different satellites okay and also they have different instruments on it they're looking at different right things. they're looking at different things maybe one is looking at the oceans one is looking at the forests, atmospheres cryosphere yeah. you know so on and so forth but then we also couple that with uh, data on the ground mm -hmm. so in my case uh you know i, I study forests so yeah. i'll take like forest inventory data where people are on the ground measuring forests along with weather station data and soil data. And then we, we try to put that all together to make something even greater than the, the sum of its parts, you know, through maybe a, a big computer model that uh, we need the supercomputer to be able to crunch all of those numbers to get a good picture of what's happening on a continent or on the global mm -hmm. scale, things like that. So talk a little bit about the forests, especially having lived in Paraguay for a while, you know, you're in a heavily forested area. And like what happens there can affect the entire planet in a lot of times or or like the areas around it. So talk a little bit how about how just the forests in general play into the global, right. you know. Yeah. Why um, is a forest ecologist at NASA, right? <laughs> That's um, a good question. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, there are several cycles that make up the global system. So there's the water cycle, the carbon yeah. cycle, you know, energy cycle, nitrogen cycle, all these different cycles, 
you know, things that are moving around the earth and make up really the system that we call... That we live in. Yeah, the earth. And um, so if we're talking about something like the, the carbon cycle, forests, global forests, make up uh, the largest terrestrial component of the, the carbon cycle. So, you know, half of the carbon that goes into the atmosphere uh, gets sucked down by forests. And so okay. any change, large-scale changes to the forests can change the carbon cycle that could then change the climate cycle and have repercussions all yeah. over the world. Same with the water cycle and, and all of that sort of stuff. So everything yeah. kind of interacts and everything and, interacts. and flows. It's, yeah. You know, right. So yeah. Like yeah. the food chain almost to a certain extent. It's like you, you tweak one thing and then other stuff happens, even if you don't necessarily understand it right away. That's right. Things are all interconnected and interwoven, very complex. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, right. So I kind of say, well, you know, like a, a computer is a very complex system, right? And it takes a lot of engineering and science and math to understand or build this sort of system. But uh, the actual biggest and most complex system on Earth mm -hmm. is the Earth itself, yeah, right? And we didn't engineer it. No, yeah. So that makes it even harder. So actually, we're just trying to figure out how this system works. And it, there's still a lot of work to be done. But yeah, so my little component of figuring out this system is figuring out how atmospheres and forests interact with one another. Okay. Yeah. So you're talking about like studying forests, doing that research, and then playing that into being a computer scientist is, is just like, this is a, an option for all computer scientists of like, oh, you can also go do you know, study, yes, actually, study forests. That's absolutely true. And, and we need actually more people with technical yeah. abilities to come and be able to make sense of this huge amount of complex data that we have. Um, so how do you do that? What, what do you do? Like, what is your day to day? What's are you my running, day to day? Or, or, or like, yeah. or what are you? Are you running this data through like new software, through databases, putting it, visualizing it in different ways, where you come up with newer ideas instead of it just being numbers on a spreadsheet? You know. Yeah. Talk so, about that. so my day to day is like getting data from all different sources, satellites or the ground, and then transforming that data into something I can use. Maybe it's a, a map of a particular area like the United States that I want to study and getting all of those data sets to match up, right? Okay. Um, so they need to be able to be comparable and usable no matter if they came from satellites or from the ground or what have you. And then I write a lot of code uh, <laughs> that crunches those numbers in the supercomputer. Maybe uh, I'll have like a, a forest model that we'll get uh, productivity estimates of the forest, given you know its reflectance from the satellite, given its climate, given the type of forest there there is on the ground, and we want to know well how productive is vegetation all over the globe, for mm -hmm. example, and so that sort of stuff goes through uh, the computer, and you know so my my ultimate goal right now while while I'm here at NASA that kind of got me here is I'm hoping to develop an early warning system oh, that will uh, that where we can um, monitor all of the forests throughout the United States and pinpoint forests that are extremely vulnerable to a large-scale mortality event, whether it's from fire or beetles or even mm -hmm. just mortality without any sort of agent of of, of death, like oh, yeah. fire or beetles, and also understanding why. Uh, those forests are vulnerable, and then giving some recommendation of what can be done to uh, maybe prevent 
this uh -huh. uh, large-scale mortality event. And so to do that, what I'm doing is I'm taking all of this data that I'm getting from the satellite, from the ground, and I'm writing code that will hopefully pull out equations, essentially, of the physics on how climate limits forests. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because, I, what uh, are the you rules? know, yeah, what, what are, the, are the rules? Exactly. What are the rules? Because it's obvious, uh, you know, climate dictates what sort of forest can be where, right? So we have a different sort of forest uh, here in California and Silicon Valley than, you know, we have up in the Pacific Northwest in Washington mm -hmm. or Oregon. And that's because the climate is different. And the climate dictates all sorts of things within the forest. It di dictates how tall the forest can get, how big the trees can get, how many trees can be in a forest and things like that. But as of yet, we don't really understand how it limits all of those or what, uh, what this kind of curve looks like, depending on your temperature and precipitation, what sort of uh, trees could exist in an area. And so I'm trying to pull out these biophysical limitations mm -hmm. that climate places on forests that I can then use to develop some sort of system that can recognize when a forest is out of balance with mm -hmm. its uh, climate system. You said it a handful of times, but like, talk a little bit about like writing the code. Cause it's not like, you know, <clears throat> I'll probably date myself. It's not like you're opening up Delphi or you're, yeah. you're screwing around or it's not like you're just powering up your PC and just writing this stuff. Cause it's like a supercomputer. I'm imagining it does not run on, uh, on a Microsoft or an iOS. No, no, that's system. right. Yeah. So how, what all goes into that? Yeah. So, uh -huh. um, yeah, yeah. So the supercomputer we have here at Ames is called Playadis and it has its own building that takes up this whole entire, it's like a city block essentially. And it even yeah. has its own cooling tower. It's so big. Why do we have supercomputers? Well, Number one, all of the data that we need to understand the global system could not fit on a smaller computer, on a desktop computer. <laughs> yeah. But then also the computations that it takes, if we were to try to do it on a, a desktop computer, it would take three years or something For like that. For it to that. render yeah. or yeah. to... Yeah, or just to crunch. run all the calculations on all of the data. And so it's essentially impossible on a normal uh computer but then if you write it correctly and you utilize the architecture of the supercomputer then you know maybe it will take a day or something like <laughs> okay. that okay so it, essentially a supercomputer makes impossible calculations possible now oh wow but you know yeah so it's not like just normal programming when you're programming yeah, on a supercomputer you're in html <laughs> you're yeah, right yeah so you know often i think scientists who have not worked with supercomputers they will think, okay, I have this little model and it works well on studying, let's say forests, and, and it works well on like a watershed or just one particular forest. Well, shoot, if I just uh, have access to the supercomputer, I'll just run it on the supercomputer like, and do boom. Do your supercomputing magic. Yeah, and then boom, I have like a, a whole global simulation. But that is not how it works. <laughs> um, I guess I kind of liken it to if uh, like, you're chopping wood and you're stacking wood, okay? Okay. If you have a little bit of wood, you can do it yourself and it's fine. You chop wood, you stack wood. Mm -hmm. But now let's say I give you a huge, huge warehouse full of wood and I tell you I want one big stack of wood. <laughs> and I say, but I'll also give you as many people as you want. I'll give okay. you a million people if you want a million people. Well, okay, 
it's not if you just say everyone stack cut and stack everybody wood, start like brute they, force right. you, you don't know where the wood's cutting. going everyone cuts wood in different ways whatever it just it doesn't work now all of a sudden you need to organize the workers you need to maybe put some of the workers chopping wood some of the workers moving wood some of the workers stacking wood and you need somebody organizing the stack of wood <laughs> things like that let alone lunch breaks and payroll right yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> those sorts of things so anyways the point is is that uh, you know the end goal is the same cut wood stack wood yeah. but the, since the scale is so different and you have so many workers the the whole process chain is completely different it's yeah. the same with supercomputing you have a small process and the end result is the same but just on a bigger scale but getting from a to b is a completely different story yeah, excellent so yeah. um you know you're working as the fellow you know, yeah, you finished your PhD, right? Yeah, or, I finished or, my PhD. So now this is the the postdoc. This is the postdoc, right? Um, yeah. So, what do you what do you see like in the future? What are you hoping to work on? You know, down the road. Yeah, so I hope to either stay on here at NASA or yeah. go on and become a professor or something. Okay. You know, I like teaching as well. I like mentoring. So I don't know. We'll see. But I think that's part of the postdoc experience. Is really. Really understanding, I? yeah, <laughs> where uh, you want to go with your next steps of your your career. Excellent. So for folks who are listening who have questions for Adam, we are on Twitter at NASA Ames, and we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So questions come in, we'll loop them on over to you and, and see if you can get some get some answers back and forth. Yeah, so, that'd be great. But thanks for coming yeah. on over. All right, thanks. Thanks.